0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Macro Compass. This is Alf speaking. A very strong labor market report coupled with the first preliminary signs that inflation is slowing down have actually brought back a 2021-like euphoria in risk assets. You see rallies all over the place, junk credit spreads tightening, meme stocks through the roof. Even Turkey is now priced as a much safer investment, even if real rates are negative 60% over there. Now, in the investment world, when markets are behaving as if the economy is delivering decent growth and inflation is coming down or it's predictably low, we call that Goldilocks. Now, there is one problem. The Goldilocks or the soft soft lending market interpretation seem pretty much misplaced to me at this stage. And in this article, we will explain why. We will discuss the latest CPI and labor market reports and prove that they do not necessarily uh, reflect higher odds of a soft lending like the market is pricing in, and then look at the behavior of different asset classes and discuss what do we do with our long-term structural and our more tactical portfolio asset allocation. Now, is the Fed ultimately achieving the soft lending after all? If you look uh, deep into the details of the job market and the CPI report, you will understand that the extent of the aggregate demand weakness that the Fed has managed to engineer through tighter financial condition is not consistent with the soft lending. True, it will help and it's already helping in slowing down inflation, but it will also come at a big cost for economic growth, which is not consistent with the Goldilocks or a soft lending narrative that seems to be developing out there. Now, at the job market level, uh, the non-farm payroll uh, report was welcomed by headlines from mainstream media saying that the job market is very strong. Now, the report was actually decent and not strong, so I would argue for holding your horses. There is first good news that all jobs lost during the pandemic have been recovered. That's very good. But if you look into where the job creation came from in the July report, you can see that the biggest net contribution between June and July in job creation was from the government. Now, you would expect that in a very strong economy where growth is robust, it's the private sector that leads job creation, not the public sector. The second more interesting point is that the Household Survey was much weaker than the Bureau of Labor Statistics job report, also known as non-farm payrolls. Now the Household Survey has a couple of differences in methodology compared to the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics survey, which are interesting. For instance, multiple job holders are counted in the in a non-farm payroll as if multiple jobs were created. that's pretty important because if you look at the household survey where that is not the case if you're a multiple job holders you're accounted separately and not as as two jobs being created the household survey shows that since March we have less full-time workers while basically all the jobs created since March are effectively people holding more jobs at once rather than new jobs being created that's an interesting uh, point I think to reflect upon The other one is that even in the non-farm payroll report, you can see that participation rate is not picking up at all. And that is very negative for the soft lending camp because a structurally smaller labor force means less growth and potentially higher wages, which could feed into higher inflation, which is exactly the opposite of Goldilocks or soft lending. Now, the second report we need to consider is the uh, CPI report. Now, inflation is finally showing some signs of a slowdown, which is great, And what a slowdown that was because the drop in monthly CPI from 1.3% to 0% is the biggest since the 80s. Now, as we know, though, the Federal Reserve cares the most about momentum and composition of inflationary pressures going forward. In order to ease their policy, they need to see progress from both fronts. Now, core inflation month on month printed at 0.3%, which was lower than last month. But if you look at the momentum measure, for instance, moving averages, a six-month moving average of monthly core inflation remains pretty high at 0.5%, which is historically as high as it was in the 80s. So the lower print at 0.3% help is helps is a good step, but obviously more is needed. Now, what actually drove the CPI drop? That's also interesting. You can see in a chart I posted in the article that most of the drop was explained by energy, other commodities, transportations, energy-related related items, and the most cyclical component of the CPI, for instance, used cars, vehicles, and trucks. Now, broadly speaking, the supply chain of of the energy sector or other commodities hasn't particularly improved, right, since a couple of months ago. So one could could try to to, uh, imply that such a drop is nothing else than the byproduct of weaker aggregate demand. If the supply picture hasn't changed much and prices are not increasing that much anymore, it must be that the weaker aggregate demand explains why the inflation picture improved. And the other um, evidence that seems to uh, enhance the weaker demand theory behind the drop in inflation is that the cyclical components of the CPI baskets are the ones experiencing the biggest drawdowns, while the stickier, more lagging core service prices, for instance, shelter, they remain stubbornly high for now. Now, of course, in short, one can argue that Looking at the labor market report and the CPI uh, report details, a soft landing narrative seems misplaced, because a soft landing implies a marked slowdown in inflation from where we are, while growth remains robust. Now, the direction of travel is good. We are having lower inflation, growth is cooling down, but the evidence points towards a rather steep drop in growth, not just a measured and controlled slowdown, which would be consistent with the soft landing narrative. And going forward, I look at grim for looking economic indicators, negative real wage growth for one and a half years, record credit card debt to try and bridge the purchasing power gap, which is forming because of negative real wages, multiple job holders they are accounting for most of the so-called job creation since March, and most importantly, my G5 credit impulse metric. Now, my G5 credit impulse metric, I, I put it in, uh, in the article, against uh, both inflation in the US lagged by five quarters and the S&P 500 earnings growth lagged by four quarters. As a measure of economic growth, earnings indeed, and inflation, year-on-year CPI in the US. Notice as credit impulse leads by four to five quarters. So we have quite a decent leading indicator, which is pointing towards a drop in both earnings in real terms and CPI as well. So we are looking effectively at a, at an economy which is slowing uh, on a nominal basis, not only on a real basis right now, that is not necessarily consistent with Goldilocks, especially if the drop in real economic growth ends up being pretty large. When it comes to markets and portfolio implications, as previously argued, some of this really makes sense. I mean, if inflationary pressures are abating, after all, the Fed can take a little bit the food off the gas pedal. Lower real yields and therefore, especially the not overly cyclical, high quality names out there can take a breather. Now, what is more reasonable is to price in an upgrade for future economic growth. And hence, the, what I call the dubious rally in uh, meme stocks, small cap cyclicals, emerging markets, junk corporate bonds. I don't think that is a sound thing to do. It must be the result of portfolio releveraging by vault uh, targeting accounts, for example or other large uh, macro-insensitive accounts, as I call them. Now, over the next few quarters, I believe that fixed income should emerge as one of the best risk-adjusted asset classes, because this is a disinflationary, lower economic growth cycle. Now, whether it's the front-end or the back-end that performs better, that will depend on the central bank reaction function. But you can see in another chart I posted that G5 credit impulse leads by one or two quarters, when it comes to the over or underperformance of bonds against stocks. And as G5 credit impulse is dropping, has dropped actually pretty aggressively over the last three to four quarters, one should expect that the overperformance of equities against treasuries actually comes to an end and the reversal might be true. So I would always prefer safer assets to risk assets in this part of the cycle. And accordingly, my long term ETF portfolio remains positioned as follows. I have quite a good chunk of cash, which is uninvested at the moment. I'm I'm waiting for better setups. I have a low exposure to risk assets. I'm not getting sucked in into this rally. I have a preference for high quality growth names and non-cyclical, low beta industries. Good tech names, healthcare, utilities, this kind of stuff. And I have a higher than usual exposure to 10-year plus government bonds, which I highlighted already in an article in June. And they're performing pretty well, as I would expect, given what my models are telling me. From a tactical portfolio perspective, I've been stopped out from being short Russell on July 29th. Uh, I announced that on Twitter. Uh, I would have lost much more money not honoring the stop. So that's a good reminder that risk management actually works. The Russell has rallied another 6% since I was stopped out. And now I still sit in my good old two-stands flatteners in the US. So long the 10-year bond, short the two-year bond. And then I am along the Nasdaq against the Russell as a relative value trade to express indeed my preference towards tech names rather than cyclical names at this stage. Now, what I call the market and portfolio implication paragraph of the macro compass will be announced big times over the coming months, guys. And my next article is going to cover at length portfolio allocation, tactical trades, risk reward across asset classes and geographies. So in case you have any ideas for asset allocation of tactical trades or topics you'd like me to cover in the next portfolio market-oriented article, just shoot a comment below or send me an email. For the rest, guys, this was all for today. Thanks for listening to this. I would like to thank you guys very much again uh, for supporting me. We are 84,000 here on the Macro Compass. I would la- just like to ask you to continue sharing my workaround if you really like it because it would make my day. We would enlarge further the Macro Compass family, and I uh, I'm, I would be very happy about it. Also, if you guys are interested in any kind of partnership or sponsorship or any other uh, consulting services, or you want me to attend a conference or a webinar, or whatever it is, just feel tr- free to reach out at the macrocompass at gmail.com. I will talk to you again next week.